Open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 9, page 100 or 1133, 1133, if you're using a, a pew Bible. Romans chapter 9. We're returning back now to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans after our month long detour to explore some of those questions that had been sent in with regard to the doctrine of election. So we're back now into the text and continuing along here. I placed in your handout for you, take that out, you can just notice that. We're not going to take the time to go through it, but I placed in there a a summary review of the first 23 verses of the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. And I did that because we've, we've got to maintain the flow of the context here or we're going to get lost. So I've repeated that for you. And just the flow of this chapter, just remember that the Apostle Paul is, is addressing this incredibly important question of, why does Israel reject their Messiah? Why does Israel reject the Christ? Is it because Paul's gospel is wrong and that he was not indeed Messiah? Is that possible? Or is it because God's promises are not true and God couldn't keep his chosen nation? Is that the reason? The Apostle Paul wants to address that incredibly profound question because it impacts not just the nation of Israel, but impacts the Gentile world as well, because Paul has made these incredible promises to the Gentiles that he says will be fulfilled through this Messiah, Jesus Christ. So it's it's huge. If he's not Messiah, then the Gentiles have no hope. If he's God's promises were not true, that is, he is Messiah but God can't hold on to His people, then the Gentiles have no hope. So it's all bound together in this question. And the ninth, 10th, and 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans here is to take up and address this huge issue. Verses 6 through 14, Paul's argument is that it is God's sovereign election is the sole basis for inclusion in the true people of God. That's the case that he argued. And he drew his support for that argument from the stories of the patriarchs. But in the verses before us this morning, he's going to turn to the prophets as he continues to make his case. God has already demonstrated, or through Paul demonstrated, that his people are not constituted such by natural descent. He's going to take it a radical step further and he's going to say that descent from Abraham is not even important at all. Not even important at all. Structurally, there's a detour for us, verses 14 through 23, where Paul undertakes, verses 14, verse 19, two great objections to the doctrine he has just laid out in verses 6 through 13. And in the process of answering these objections, he has, he has set the stage for what's going to happen next. He has, he has outlined for us the absolute sovereignty of God. The absolute sovereignty of God. So when he gets to verse 24 through 29, he's kind of reaching the climax of his argument. 
the climax is here for us this morning. And the basic argument is this, that it is the sovereignty of God that has called both Gentiles into salvation and it is the sovereign election of God that will preserve Israel. That's his argument. Let me just read the text for you a little bit and get a run at this. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly, just as Isaiah foretold. Except the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. This section here before us, verses 24 and 29 has its emphasis in the mercy of God. The mercy of God. But is the sovereign mercy of God. Before us this morning, we're going to see a twofold demonstration of God's sovereign grace so that we might rejoice in that mercy. Vessels of mercy is the subject. The first demonstration this morning, verses 24 to 26, is that Gentiles are called by God's sovereign grace. Notice how Paul continues his account here at the beginning of verse 24. He says, even us. He's, this is a continuation of his teaching here on sovereign election. But it's moving here from the theoretical to the actual now. Paul is saying, even us, that is me and you to whom I'm writing, we are vessels of mercy. We are the recipients of the sovereign grace of God. Beyond that, it's not just Israel, which one might expect, but it goes way beyond that. It's Gentiles too. Do you see it? Not only Jews, but also from among Gentiles. This is a radical statement. It's an absolutely radical statement. A group that had not descended from Abraham, thus has no claim to, the, to being the people of God at all. Paul says now that you too are the people of God. 
You Gentiles are being admitted into the people of God. And that reality is the demonstration of the sovereign grace of God. Just like he says in verse 18 of chapter 9, he mercies whom he will mercy, he hardens whom he will harden. He's extending his mercy wide. Paul's going to support this conclusion by quoting two verses out of the prophet Hosea. He's going to reach back to the prophet Hosea and lift out two verses and bring them forward as his biblical proof for this amazing statement that the sovereign electing grace and mercy of God is now drawing Gentiles in as well. In these verses that he draws from Hosea, in fact, in the, the life of the prophet Hosea itself, Paul finds an analogy. He finds an analogy that what God is presently doing among the Gentiles and will ultimately do for the nation of Israel as a whole finds an analogy back in the life of Hosea. Verses 25 and 26 here. As he says also in Hosea. Now the prophet Hosea may not be on the tip of your tongue or the front lobe of your brain. I'm not sure the last time you read the prophet Hosea. So let me just give you a quick overview of that book. Hosea was the prophet of unconditional love. He was called by God to minister to the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel after the separation and split, the 8th century B.C. The amazing thing about the prophet Hosea is that by God's design, Hosea's marriage is an analogy for the idolatry and faithlessness of this northern kingdom. God instructed Hosea to take a wife named Gomer and to take her as a wife with the full knowledge that she would repeatedly leave him and involve herself in adulterous affairs. Furthermore, by the names of the three children born to the union of Hosea and Gomer, God was going to signify to the nation their fate. Each of the children born, two sons and a daughter, by their name indicate the fruit of the nation's idolatry. The first son was named Jezreel. Jezreel. It means sown or scattered. It's a reference to the coming Assyrian exile. Shortly after the time of Hosea, the nation is going to be exiled into the Assyrian captivity. The next child born of the union is named Lo-Ruhamah, without compassion. Indicating that the people will find no mercy. No mercy when judgment falls. The third child, a son, is named Lo-Afmi, not my people. It signifies God's rejection and renunciation of these ten tribes. 
Now, as the story develops, Gomer eventually leaves Hosea. But God directs this man to go and to search for his wife. So he searches for her high and low. He finally finds her offered for sale in a slave market. She has been deserted and despised by her various lovers and has now been reduced to slavery. Hosea redeems her. He purchases her from this slave market. He brings her back to his house. He puts her in a place of restraint, separating her from her lovers until her discipline is complete. And then he takes her back to himself as his wife. The application of this man's life is that the northern kingdom, just like Gomer, have played the harlot with God. They have repeatedly deserted him for other gods that are no gods. They have committed spiritual adultery. But God, just like Hosea in his conquering love, he will redeem them and he will separate them from their their idolatry. He will set them apart for a period of exile and punishment before he again takes them to himself as his wife forever. Paul reaches back into this prophecy and he draws out two verses for us here in Romans 9. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Both of those verses in Hosea speak of the restoration of ethnic Israel after this indefinite period of God's chastisement and discipline, that they will again be returned to their status as favored nation. Why? Why does Paul choose these verses? What is it that he sees in God's dealing with Israel as revealed in the prophet Hosea and Hosea's life itself? What is it that Paul sees that helps answer the pressing question upon us? And that is, why has Israel rejected her Messiah? In what way do these verses answer that question? Let me make a few observations for you. First, it is without a doubt that the original prophecy in Hosea is written to the ten tribes of Israel. And that the expectation of fulfillment did not include Gentiles. The original prophecy is to Israel. It does not include Gentiles. Second, as Paul cites these two verses here in Romans chapter 25 and 26, these two verses out of Hosea, he does so using what's called a free citation. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but if you read in the New Testament where an Old Testament verse is, is quoted, do you ever go back to the Old Testament and look? If you do that, often what you find is the words aren't quite the same. That's because the biblical writers didn't, didn't operate on the standards of of literary quotation that you and I have grown up with and become familiar to. There are no quotation marks in the Bible. They're not representing that this is a word-for-word exact quotation. There's no footnotes. Those are standards of Western academia. 
So what they're doing and what they frequently do is use what's called a free citation. That means that they don't follow the exact ancient text word for word, letter for letter. Here, Paul actually reverses the word order. Romans 9.25, he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. There's actually a reversal of the way it's written in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. Beyond that, Paul changes a verb. Hosea, the verb is I will say, Paul changes it to I will call. Now, how can he do that? What's his justification for doing that? He does it because he recognizes the power in the word of God. What God says will come to pass. And so, in effect, that when God says to them that you are not my people, but you will be my people, it's the same thing as God calling them to that reality. So Paul feels very comfortable in being able to do that. It fits his purpose here. And, and actually, you see verses 24, 25, 26. Just take a look. You'll see the repetition of the verb kaleo to call. It's in verse 24, verse 25, verse 26. Paul is highlighting something here. What he is highlighting is God's sovereign elective grace which lies behind both Hosea's prophecy of the future restoration of Israel and the fact that Gentiles are now part of the church. They are all vessels of mercy. That's his point. That's the flow. Third, notice verse 25, how he begins the citation. As he says also in Hosea. Paul's making a comparison here. It's a comparison. He's not talking about a literal fulfillment of the prophecy. He's saying that there's something in the prophecy. That by comparison, I'm seeing fulfilled here and now. There's an analogy going on. Beyond that, down in verse 26, Romans, it says, and it shall be in that or in the place. Do you see it in the place? Hosea 1.10. That could be a reference to geography, but it's just as plausible a reference to a condition. To a condition or a situation in which somebody finds themselves. That is the situation of being separated from God. And we, we use this kind of language all the time, by the way. We say things like, I'm in a hard place right now. Right? We're not talking about a piece of geography. We're talking about a situation that we're in. This, by the way, is how many of the ancient rabbis interpreted Hosea 1.10, that he's talking about a situation. So just kind of pulling these observations together a little bit. What can we conclude from Paul's use of the prophet here? Paul says that the majority of Israel has rejected Messiah because they were predestined by God to do so. He also says that someday that rejection will be reversed. If you look over to verse 26, chapter 11, you see it. Thus, all Israel will be saved. So between those two events. The sovereign predestination of God in which. 
the great majority of Israel has been rejected and the day in which God will gather in again his chosen people, something's going on. And what's going on is that according to God's sovereign election, he's chosen a few out of Israel as vessels of mercy. And not only that, he's included Gentiles as well. But the question still kind of remains, it's kind of nagging. How does the prophecy of Hosea prefigure that? What is it in this prophecy of Hosea that that supports that statement? It's the manner. It's the manner by which God calls the Gentiles. It's the manner by which he will call the nation of Israel in the future. It's an analogy. As it was in the day of Hosea, so it is now and so it will be. That's his analogy. According to verse 14, chapter 2 of the book of Hosea, God is the one who allures Israel back. God is the one who speaks kindly to her. God is the one who brings her back into the place where she's again singing songs of salvation as she did in the Exodus. In the life of the prophet himself, it was Hosea who went and found Gomer. It was Hosea who purchased her from the slave market and brought her back to himself. That's what Paul finds in this prophecy that is so compelling. It is that God, it is God in His sovereign mercy that reaches out and rescues people. The calling of the Gentiles, the the present salvation of a remnant of ethnic Israel is merely a or, or is prefigured in the analogy of what Hosea did with Gomer and what God did or says he will do for the nation of Israel. That's why Paul can say that Hosea proves that the rejection of Messiah is according to the sovereign workings of God. Beyond that, Paul says that there will be a Jewish remnant, a Jewish remnant kept by God's sovereign grace. Verses 27 and 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. Just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become a Sodom, we would have resembled Gomorrah. Paul completes his case. He completes his case that the that the rejection of Israel is an outworking of God's elective purposes. And he does it here by drawing Isaiah, the message of Isaiah to bear. It is God's sovereign election that is the answer for Israel's unbelief. Paul has moved from talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles to speaking now about the remnant of Israel. And what he says is that the present state of the nation, that is, rejection of Messiah except for a small remnant, 
was foretold by the previous pattern. The previous pattern in the life of Isaiah the prophet, the pattern of unbelief, the pattern of divine judgment, the pattern of electing grace that was revealed in the Babylonian captivity of the 6th century. Isaiah predicted the population of Israel was large. Look how large. It would be like the sand of the sea. That is, it is, it is huge. It is multitudinous. But only a minority of them is going to survive the Babylonian invasion. Only a small minority are going to survive the judgment of God that falls on them. And the only reason that remnant survives is because of God's sovereign mercy. Without that, the whole nation would have been utterly wiped out. Look again, verse 26. Except the Lord had left to us a posterity, except the Lord had extended mercy and grace to us, except the Lord had chosen a few to be vessels of mercy, the whole nation would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. That live forevermore in the biblical text as two cities completely obliterated in the judgment of God. That's Paul's point here. That's his point. His point is that just as in the Old Testament, that the nation survived through a remnant brought about by the sovereign electing grace of God, so now the nation survives through a remnant spared as vessels of mercy. The question that we should be asking ourselves is not that why do only a few Jews believe the question would be is why did God not completely obliterate his people when they rejected their Messiah? The answer is he has sovereignly chosen to save a remnant. He has sovereignly chosen to save a remnant, just like he did in the 6th century B.C. in the Babylonian Captivity. Folks, even today, God preserves a remnant among the Jews. The remnant survives today. There are those few among the Jewish people who know and follow Messiah. Generation after generation, just a few, just a handful, just a remnant. But in them, the nation survives. For how long? How long will Israel survive? The nation, that little nation, tucked away there in Palestine, surrounded by enemies who would seek to push her into the sea. How long will she survive? She will survive. Just as long as God is continuing to save a remnant among her. It is for the sake of the remnant that the nation is not obliterated. That Israel remains to this day. Because God is still saving a remnant out of them. They will last. They will survive. Until the great and glorious future time 
when God will open wide His arms of mercy and He will draw to Himself the nation and they will experience the blessing of the new covenant promised to them. At that time, Jesus Christ will return to earth. He will rescue Israel. Rescue her from her enemies. He will establish His great millennial kingdom upon the earth. But until that day, the nation survives because of the remnant. Because of the remnant. It is God's sovereign mercy that keeps Israel around today. It is God's sovereign mercy that has reached out to Gentiles who have no claim in Abraham at all and grants to them the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. It is God from beginning to end. From the patriarchs to the prophets. It is of God. Salvation is of God. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, one thing you can do with this is you can take hope in Jewish evangelism. I don't know if you've ever tried to share the gospel with a Jewish person before. But it is most often extremely unfruitful. There is a wall. Moses says there is a veil lies over their eyes even to this day. doesn't go anywhere. There is a violent rejection of it all. But you can take hope because, because God has guaranteed a remnant. And He's continuing to save that remnant generation after generation after generation. And so gospel preaching amongst the Jewish people will bear fruit. It will bear fruit. Some are guaranteed by God to be vessels of mercy. Some will see Yahshua as Messiah and will come to faith in Him. Beyond that, you can rejoice in the sovereign mercy of God that has been extended to you. You Gentiles, you who were once excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, cut off from her promises, outside and without hope, Paul says. But now, by the sovereign mercy of God, you have been brought into a saving relationship with the God of Israel. That's enough to fuel your worship for eternity, by the way. When you think about election, and that's really what this is all about. When you think about the doctrine of election, don't think about the majority who are excluded, the majority who do not believe. Because that's not the tack the Bible takes upon it. Actually, the Bible takes it the other way. What the Bible highlights 
in the doctrine of election, God's predestinating love is those vessels of mercy upon whom God showers his blessings. Those rebellious sinners that ought to be exterminated, that ought to be obliterated like Sodom and Gomorrah, yet God reaches out to them. That's the biblical balance in all of this. That's how the scriptures focus on it. Don't ask yourself, why do so few receive mercy? Ask yourself, why do anyone receive mercy at all? That's the question. That's the question. I think implicit in this whole discussion of God's mercy is the notion that it is available to you. The mercy is available to you this morning. You sitting here in this room this morning, God's mercy is available to you. It can be yours. It can be yours if you will but humble your heart and flee to the God of Israel for refuge. He is continuing to extend his mercy generation upon generation. It is available to you now. But it is available to you only on God's terms. That is, you must humble your heart. You must turn from your independence, from your sin, from your commitment to your own way of doing things, from a life oriented towards your own comfort and status in which you have broken every single one. Of God's Ten Commandments. In a word, you must recognize that you reside under the wrath of God and you have no hope but God Himself. And if you will, by faith, flee to the God of Israel, who has provided on Calvary's cross a substitute for your sin. That child born into the world on Christmas. God taking on human flesh that He might live among us perfectly. Fulfilling every single commandment, letter and spirit. And then voluntarily surrendering His life on that cross. If you will, by faith, believe that His death is your death. That His life is your life. If you will call out to Him and say, save me. Save me. Have mercy on me. I believe You died for me. I believe You rose again and and are sitting at the right hand of the Father. I believe that You seek to be my Lord. I surrender my heart to you. And the scripture says that you too will experience his mercy. 
you too will be his child. Beloved, flee. Flee to the cross of Christ and know his mercy today.